Hello everybody and welcome back to Practice Makes Faithful. Today we are in Season 2, Episode 13. My name is Ben Patterson. I'm joined by Paul Hugerbart. Hey Ben, good to see you. Good to see you too. Yeah, it's good to be seen. Yes, yes. Uh, Paul's, uh, Paul's voice might be a little, uh, little different today. Slightly uh, froggy. <laughs> Yeah, yep, yeah. Yep. Just just get over the flu, right? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, so um, so actually came uh, to church on Sunday. Was here, and you know my family's been on and off for the last week battling these light little colds, and so thought probably it was just turned for mine. In fact, it felt a little funny on Saturday. I already felt it coming on a little bit, but you know felt you know actually Friday going back to Friday. So felt like okay, quick, and I'm going to get over the hump of this thing, and came on Sunday. And, you know, actually partway through preaching, just started feeling like, oh, man, I, I need to get out of here fast. And I hope I don't give anybody anything that I've got going on. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I had a little bit of a little bit of a bug, um, but fortunately got over it pretty quickly uh, and, and glad to be back in the saddle. But, you know, sometimes you're left with a little grogginess in the throat after one of these things. And so, so I think I'll be dealing with uh, the funny sounding voice for the next couple of days or so. But uh, but doing well, doing well, <laughs> feeling probably pretty close to 100% at this point, which is awesome. That's good. That's good. Yeah. You don't sound 100%. I don't if you're sound feeling 100%, it, that's good. But I feel pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, we are glad we still get to have this conversation. Yeah. Um, and uh, get to dive into our final part of our series, Witness. Today we're in part five, mm-hmm. the conclusion of that series. That's right. Um, so, Paul, as we dive into that, you want to give us that recap, final recap of this series? Yeah. This point. Yeah. Final. Final recap. Again. Um, just. Just think about this very plain truth. As Jesus followers, we're called to be like Jesus everywhere we go. That's. That's the idea of being a disciple. You know, mm-hmm. to be a disciple is Jim talked about a couple of times when he was on the podcast this month. Is to follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, embrace the mission of Jesus, and in doing all those things, we're being like Jesus was on this earth. You know, mm-hmm. so we we live like Jesus. That's our call. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've done this series called Witness to really kind of try to bring that point to bear as much as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, thinking about the fact that you and I are called to represent Jesus in everyday life. As Paul says mm-hmm. uh, in 2 Corinthians, you know, we're ambassadors for Christ. You know, as though he were making his appeal through us. I mean, think about that, you know, what it's like to be an ambassador. And if you think about the, the nations around this world, every nation has ambassadors to all these different nations who represent the idea of the home country abroad. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what they do. And so in the sense like that, you know, Paul is saying he's uh, referring to uh, kind of what we know, and what we see on the political sphere or the national sphere um, to say, hey, look, you know what this looks like when somebody goes in as an ambassador for a king or a president or prime minister somewhere, um, you are like that for, for God, for Christ, as you go. So we're called to represent him everywhere we go. In other words, what he thinks is what I need to think and what I need to represent. The way he loves is the way I need to love and the, the kind of love that I need to represent. And so, you know, for this month, we've had this banner that hangs on one of the walls in, in, uh, in our hallway, uh, one of our hallways. And, um, you know, people have been putting on that banner the different ways that they're representing Jesus in everyday life. As we thought about the first series, uh, the first week of this series, uh, we had Kelvin Teamer on the podcast as a guest. You know, just this idea that, that our unity is a declaration of, of, of what Jesus wants for us. In fact, Jesus said, you know, um, that, that's how they're going to know that you're my disciples. If you love each other, Jim preached about that a couple weeks ago. 
Um, Kelvin talked about the, the unity uh, being what, what is now this witness to the world about uh, who Jesus is, actually confirming his identity and our identity as well. I mean, so there's so much in this um, when we think about the love that we have for each other, uh, the way that we're called to unity with each other, the way that we're called to go and serve the world. I mean, all these different things uh, that really, uh, in a sense, are ways that we can witness to who Jesus is that we can be his representatives in everyday life. And so I want for our folks here at Grace Chapel to know that, to believe that, to understand first, we're called to be witnesses, but then to know beyond that, here are these ways that we can go and now be witnesses to who Jesus is, to represent him in everyday life. And I think sometimes we, we have this idea, and I think that's why we uh, why, one of the reasons why we did this series anyway is sometimes we think that we represent Jesus in these big things, in these really big moves. You know, So if this really big opportunity came, well then yes, I would represent Jesus that way. When the reality is we're called to represent Jesus in the, in the small things, you know, the, the moderately sized things, the big things, whatever it is. And in fact, oftentimes it's the small things and the consistency that sets the tone for the rest of life. Yeah. You know, so if you can't represent Jesus in a small in a small way, how in the world do you think you'd represent him when the really big opportunity comes? And so we start with every small opportunity we have, aiming to be representatives, witnesses to who Jesus is as we go and as we live life. So really, again, that's that's the aim of this series and what we hope to accomplish. I think that's good. That's good. So th- in this week's message, you presented a lot of information yes. in the beginning, in the intro, talking about a lot of cultural forces going on here, and is um, a lot, a lot of stuff going on. Can you can you flesh that out for us? Um, yeah. For those who are here or those who are new to it, a lot of those concepts are probably new to a lot of us. Yeah. So um, with that teaser. You want to dive into that? Yeah, yeah. Well, and even even for those who are here, you know, I'm 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 feeling like, and I haven't gone back and watched this message yet. I probably ought to, but um, you know, as I was as I was standing up in front on the stage, and I was starting to feel a little bit uh, a little more awkward as time went on. Um, you know, I, I feel like I kind of tried to rush through the message to, to to get out of here as quickly as possible, hoping not to get anyone else sick. Um, and so definitely want to flesh this out a little further for a number of reasons, yeah. but because the concepts I think are uh, complex in some ways too, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, and so, um, you know, I think one thing everybody recognizes is, is that times are changing. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think, you know, you don't have to be, um, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid forties now, or as of, as of the 17th of this month, I'll be officially in my mid forties. Mm. Um, you know, so you don't have to be in your mid forties. You don't have to be in your mid eighties. You can be in your mid twenties and recognize that, man, things are changing quickly. The way that people think, especially in the Western world, uh, you know, the way that we have traditionally thought has, has shifted to a very new way of thinking here, here very rapidly. And, you know, we've talked about post-modernity before. We've talked about, you know, what some are calling post-postmodernism because we're not really sure what label to put on it quite yet. Whatever it is, a lot of this has happened super quickly. And I think part of that is because, you know, we live in what's being called the information age where, um, you know, it used to be that to get information out, you, you might have to write a book, you'd have to put it in print. That was the way it had to happen. And it would have to be that you found somebody who's willing to publish your stuff. Now, it doesn't matter how good your stuff is, it can be garbage <laughs> and you can start your own page and put it out there, you know, on any message board, on anything. And so. 
Um, you know, so it doesn't take long to get ideas out there, and especially ideas that become compelling then start to be repeated more and more and more and more. And so you see them on social media and all these other things. And so, you know, as people start to speak uh, the same, you know, quote unquote, small t truth, uh, more and more, more people will latch on to it. And so that's, that's what's happened in the last several years is there have been a number of ideas and thoughts that have become culturally vogue. And, and so things have changed with that. And again, think about all that's in place. Uh, the information superhighways to allow that information, those thought patterns to travel very, very quickly. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think we all, again, intellectually feel that. And I use the word feel there intentionally. I mean, it's like a feeling. We can sense it. You know, it's almost, um, you know, innate somehow. We, we can tell that things are different. But, but just because we can tell that things are different or we can feel things are different doesn't mean that we actually understand how some of these changes are occurring. Okay. Okay. Now, I think um, understanding how the changes are occurring is important. Understanding, period, is important for Christ followers. Mm -hmm. I, I talked on Sunday morning about, um, you know, so when, uh, when King David uh, was, was having his clash with King Saul, well, he wasn't King David yet. He, you know, he'd been anointed. So he was the future king. The problem was the present king was still reigning, right? And so King David had been anointed. Saul starts to chase after him. Actually, uh, you know, within the tribes of Israel, allegiances start to be given by different men within different tribes. And some, you know, some entire tribes came over to David. Some places only partial tribes came over to David and pledged their allegiance to him, basically. Um, you know, so it really depended. I mean, David had his men, there's no doubt. And from Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, we see this, there were these men from Issachar and they're called out for one thing, which is really cool. Maybe it's two things. Um, the first thing is that they understood the times. The second thing then would be that they knew what Israel should do. And so they're highlighted for that. You know, as Christians, uh, Paul talks, I think, toward the end of Romans about, you know, that we ought to be people who know and understand and see the times as well. Okay. You know, that it shouldn't just be, yeah. it's not exclusive to those men of Issachar. And so I think it is important that we try to understand the times that we are living in right now. Uh, if we don't, it's kind of like burying our head in the sand, you know, and, and not okay. paying attention to what's happening. And so, you know, I, I want to walk you through just a quick progression. Um, a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, I talked about the fact that we're, we're living in this culture that's rapidly becoming post-Christian. I think there's becoming an acceptance of that, the, the statistics. The data just absolutely shows that to be the case. Okay, so at this point in time, we can, we can argue about that, we can lament about it, whatever, but the reality is the numbers, yeah. the numbers bear that out. Um, you know, I talked about the fact as well that we have this movement of those who are once uh, identified themselves as evangelical who now identify themselves as ex-evangelicals, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. so, you know, I've shared this quote many times, but it's because it's so powerful, so true. Uh, you know, where John Mark Comer says in Live No Lies, he says, in our current culture, the place of the church and the place of everyday Christians has shifted from one of honor to one of shame. Okay, so, you know, in that, there's this reality. I mean, it's what we're dealing with. Again, living in this culture that's becoming rapidly post-Christian. Now, people have asked me, several people here, both at Grace Chapel, and I've had other folks ask me too, when we talk about this, to say, okay, well, could you please explain this? What do you mean by the culture is becoming um, rapidly post-Christian? And so I want to try to, borrowing from a number of different folks, explain this move from 
uh, a time in which certainly culture, cultural Christianity was the norm to the time that we're living in right now where cultural Christianity is not the norm at all, where we are living in really truly a, a post-Christian culture. So uh, in order to do this, I'm going to borrow from, uh, you know, from uh, four different people primarily. There's a guy named Carl Truman. Uh, we'll link his, one of his most recent books. Uh, it's called the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Really, really good book. Okay. Um, Charles Taylor, we talked about him before. He wrote a book called The Secular Age. Uh, there is actually, somebody pointed this out to me recently, uh, and I'm saying this because Charles Taylor's book is like 900 pages and incredibly hard to read. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. I, I've read portions of it as, as I've needed to, to go and find, you know, what did Taylor say about this, but it's really difficult to read. Mm -hmm. um, Mark Sayers has written several books and also has a great podcast, and we can, uh, you know, link some of those things here as well. Um, he wrote especially uh, w one that we'll be talking about a little bit here today or some of the thoughts that I'll borrow be borrowing from right now. Um, Mark Sayers wrote um, uh, The Non-Anxious non Presence is the name of the book right now, a really good book. He's a, he's a pastor in Australia, Melbourne, Australia. Then there's a guy named Roger Olson who's a theologian at Baylor uh, who wrote, uh, the, the title's kind of interesting, but he actually he, he talks about this move throughout this book. Uh, the title of the book is called Against Liberal Theology, which I know mm -hmm. kind of sounds a little bit aggressive at first. In fact, it's very interesting because the book is not aggressive at all in its approach. And so anyway, so those four guys um, have, have shared some thoughts. I want to borrow from their thoughts and uh, kind of their progression. And there are others that they are borrowing from as well. And we could talk about them as well, Leslie Newbegin and some others, John Gray. Um, but, but for the most part, we'll just focus on those four guys and their thoughts. And so, um, and also then taking this and distilling it and adding my flavor to it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So you won't find exactly these words in any of their thinking, but, but this is kind of synthesizing their material, their thinking. So, um, you know, if you go back roughly 500 years, I'd say all the Western world lived in what was called a theocratic state. If you think about, you know, we just had uh, Halloween right this week. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, Halloween is actually uh, October 31st. Something else very significant happened on October 31st in the year 1517 when Martin Luther went and nailed his 95 Thesis to this church door. Okay. Um, and so that's now 505 years ago. We, uh, we, you know, so people actually celebrate what's called Reformation Day. Um, you know, but even with that move toward the Reformation, which happened in slow chunks. Um, even with that move toward the Reformation, uh, the, the theocratic state still existed. You know, so if you say, okay, well, some of the some of the nations in in Europe stayed Catholic for quite some time by by identity, and, and actually some still have official state religions in a sense. Um, you know, you think about the Church of England. Mm -hmm. You know, we saw the Queen's funeral. Here's all this liturgy that goes back, you know, uh, centuries that was featured in that funeral. Um, but we would have to say that even England is not a theocracy and it's not really truly a monarchy, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can see it truly exists as a secular state. Um, but in the theocratic state, again, there is no separation between church and state whatsoever. Okay, so if you go back 500 years and even follow that down through, uh, really until the establishment of this nation, that was true about most Western, pretty much every Western nation. Okay, so there's no separation whatsoever between church and state. And basically, what, what is meant by that is that the government is not neutral at all 
in relation to which religion or which denomination in okay. the following centuries is the correct one. Okay. Uh, think, think about um, you know, William Tyndale who was burned at the stake for translating the Bible into English because the Bible needed to stay in Latin, right? Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. couldn't be given out to the commoners. It had to be the domain of the priests and nobody else. Mm -hmm. And so Tyndale translates the Bible into English and is burned at the stake for it. I think he was choked or strangled first and then burned at the stake. Um, you know, so horrible death. And that was true, you know, about many people who maybe did not agree with or somehow pushed back against uh, the powers that be as it relates to the theocratic state. And so, you know, you have the inquisitions and other things like that that happen uh, during this time, this kind of rule and reign of the theocratic state. Um, and, and the reason that the governments felt like they could do those kind of things was because they believed really that truly that they had a divine mandate that God was with them you know so um, so when Tyndale is burned at the stake it's not just you did something we didn't like it's we believe you are a heretic you 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 know you desecrated the word of God by taking it out of Latin never mind that you know the original scriptures were in Hebrew, some little bit of Aramaic and then Greek, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so they translate into Latin in the Vulgate. And then from there, you know, Tyndall translates into, into English, but he's deemed a heretic for that and burned as, you know, at the stake as an enemy of God. Hmm. Okay, so the government claims divine mandate. Therefore, if you're not with us, you're not just an enemy of the state, you're an enemy of God as well. Okay. So that's the theocratic state. Now with the establishment of the United States in particular, um, there was a move made toward classical liberalism. Now some would say that even pre, um, pre the establishment of the United States as a nation, um, that, that Britain was already making a move toward classical liberalism. Uh, you know, the French Revolution was ongoing as well, but really, Here's where we have to look to see at least modern classical liberalism take roots, mm -hmm. which by the way, okay. certainly has its um, roots in Greek society and Greek culture and uh, Greek uh, political structure as well, um, and Roman as well. Um, but, but the idea of classical liberalism basically is this. When you think about classical liberalism, I wanna put kind of this, you know, this moniker on it in a sense. It's the idea of live and let live. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, you're gonna live, you do what you wanna do, and we'll pretty much stay out of each other's business. And beyond that, not only will we stay out of each other's business, you do what you wanna do, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, within certain bounds, obviously. I mean, you know, I think even all classical liberal states would, would uh, you know, would basically give way to the idea that, that murder is is not an okay thing and we're not just gonna, you know. So mm -hmm. we're gonna have as few laws as possible to basically order society, but beyond that, it's live and let live. Mm -hmm. You know, so in that, the way that I described that on Sunday morning was that the government or state acts as an authority, but takes an intentionally neutral stance as it relates to matters of faith in particular. Think about, you know, we think about how, you know, certainly the pilgrims coming over in, was it 1520? Is that when they came? Am I right about that? Something like that. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in that ballpark. I think I'm. I think I'm actually off on that one. Um, I know Jamestown was 1619. Trying to think of exactly when the Pilgrims came. It's not quite Thanksgiving yet, so my brain isn't <laughs> to that yet. Um, but when when the Pilgrims came over and you know went to Plymouth, uh, Plymouth Rock. Maybe that was a little closer, right around 1600. Um, they were coming to pursue what? 
I mean, they were coming to pursue religious freedom. That's why they were coming, because they've been told, you can, you know, you, you can live here, but if you want to live here, you got to do Christianity the way we're doing Christianity. No, you can't do it your own little sectarian way. And it wasn't sectarian, it was just different. You can't do it your own unique flavor. Um, and so they decided, let's go west. So they came here to the United States seeking re religious freedom, religious liberty. Okay, so um, that really is the idea behind classical liberalism. You know, so we're going to establish this government in which the state is neutral toward matters of faith, primarily. Um, from there, we made a progression to what many call late, liberal, late liberalism. Now, here's my label on late liberalism. It's this idea of, you know, so we go from live and let live to don't tell me how to live, basically. Um, I'll, I'll make sense of that in just a second. So here's, here's how I'll say it. Uh, the government state acts as an authority, and then tension begins to emerge about its neutral stance as it relates to matter of faith. Now, the reason why, and here's where the don't tell me how to live comes in, is because we start to see that there's a lot at stake with the choices you make about how you're gonna live, especially as we become more and more diverse. Mm -hmm. Okay, so think about in the United States when at first the question was this, um, which flavor of Christian are you? Well, I'm not a Christian, I'm actually more of an agnostic or a deist. Okay, well, we'll tolerate you and that will be okay. Um, but there's different flavors of Christian. Now, that wasn't always the case even. I mean, there were some real struggles between different flavors of Christians in the United States uh, in the sense that, you know, you think about, um, you know, the separation between North and South, um, one of the factors that caused a fair bit of separation was um, was a mistrust of Christians of different sects. Mm -hmm. And then even later, as the Northeast becomes more Catholic, there emerged more mistrust. This is post-Civil War. But there emerged more mistrust for the Northeast from the South because the Northeast was predominantly Catholic. In fact, when uh, JFK, when Kennedy became president, People were shocked because there were some who had said a Catholic will never be president of the United States. And so there's not, you know, there's been maybe a live and let live attitude in the sense of tolerance. Like, all right, look, as long as you keep your hand out of my wallet, I'll, I'll deal with you. Don't take my stuff and, you know, don't touch my things and you stay away from me and I'll deal with you that way. Um, but this gets even more complicated as we now move out of a place to where diversity is not just a question of what flavor of Christian you are, but it's what religion are you, period. Mm -hmm. or, um, or if you think about the move toward this hyper-secularism that we're seeing now, um, or what we'll talk about in the, the, the sense of hyper-liberalism in a minute, which is emerging as almost a new religion of sense that people are pursuing. Now you move from what's, you know, some are calling diversity to hyper-diversity, even within that state of complicated diversity, you start to see that the neutral stance that the government is taking creates tension between people. And when that tension becomes um, manifest, because one group of people starts to tell another group of people how to live, the government is staying out of it, but the people start to tell other groups of people how to live. Now there starts to be this tension within the government about its neutral stance toward matters of faith, right? So it becomes more complex as we go, though. If you think about, again, if it's just as, you know, if the diversity that we're struggling with 
is just Christian diversity. Well, we still all believe in the same God. We still all believe, even I'd say we'd affirm the, the primary pillars of the Christian faith. Doesn't matter what denomination you are for the most part. Um, now, the diversity that we're moving into, it's a much more complex form of diversity. Okay. And, and that means much more diverse beliefs, much more diverse priorities within these different groups that are forming. Okay. So from there, we move into hyperliberalism, where now those different groups of people that couldn't quite agree about um, you know, the things that matter most or what is okay and what's not okay. But again, remember, these are things outside of the bounds of what um, the classical liberal government has said they will protect. You know, So mm -hmm. you, you still don't have people just going out and murdering, but the way you live, you, you choose to live your life, you think just for, for one example, um, you know, sexual ethics, right? So a classical liberal state would mostly say, listen, we stay out of that. Mm -hmm. We stay out of that, live and let live, right? Mm -hmm. Now you move into hyperliberalism, and what you get is, uh, you know, here's again, here's the moniker that I'll put onto that is it's it's you need to tell those people how to live. So we go from live and let live to don't tell me how to live to now turning around on the government and saying to the government or wanting to use the authority of the government mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to tell other people how they ought to live and how they should live. And and yeah. go ahead, yeah. I guess I, maybe a clarifying point. I guess I'm. Mm -hmm. As I'm as I'm processing all this, yeah, this is a lot yeah. of new information I'm chewing on. Yeah, please poke on this as, as we well go. Here. Is so this is not a when we hear liberalism, we yeah. tend to think liberal, conservative. Uh, yes. But this is nothing to do with that dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. if, but it Thank comes you for to the political that. dichotomy because this hyper liberalism, yes. each of these, this comes this is a, not a right or left thing. This is on both this is not sides a right of the issue. Yeah. You see hyper liberals on maybe on the yes. uh, conservative side That's exactly right. who are wanting it to be government to tell everyone to live the Christian yes. way. It's Christian nationalism, right. right? Correct. Um, then exactly you have right. on the other side, maybe hyper-liberals mm -hmm. on the left, on the Democratic side, who are saying, no, 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 we want you to all live by this new secular ethic. We right. want you to live this way. You're exactly um, right. So this all this all plays on both sides. This, yes. By putting that word liberalism there, it so easily can just kind of fall. We it's, think you're liberal, right. conservative. That's good. That's a good catch, Ben. We're not yeah. talking about that. I mean, if you look at most European governments, what would surprise most of us in the United States, and I think this is true in Australia as well, um, is that the most conservative parties are typically called the liberal parties. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about it, the closest thing that we have maybe in name akin to that here in the United States um, is is the idea of the, uh, libertarian. the libertarian party. Yeah. You know, and so uh, libertarian is a reflection of what liberalism is, mm -hmm. and, and that's hyper classical liberalism in the in the sense that mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes libertarians would like the government to do nothing, yeah. would be all for the legalization of all sorts of drugs and everything else that mm -hmm. goes with it. Mm -hmm. So it's the truest definition of live and let live. Which, frankly, when you think about the founding of this country, how few laws were on the books to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, what you had were um, I, I'm trying to think of the way that constitutional lawyers call this. I think it was um, a, declara a declaration of independence was uh, were, were they called the negative rights? So you, you know you can't do this kind of thing to someone else, right? So um, you know so Congress shall make no law doing this type of thing, mm -hmm. right? So um, you know so it's very small, 
very small uh, grouping of laws to begin with. So I guess then one of the things I'm seeing in this pattern as we're as we're moving forward from mm-hmm. that theocratic state to the classical liberalism, late liberalism, late liberalism into the hyperliberalism, mm-hmm. is um, one might hear that and interpret that and think that you're saying that oh we're getting progressively more democratic basically we're getting mm. like as in the democratic party as in the liberal side but right. this is something that is. Uh, this is a cultural movement that is really yes. impacting all of our culture. It's yeah. not just on one side of the aisle. Am I hearing that no, correctly? No, you're, you're exactly right. Um, I mean, the, this it, it manifests is, differently, yes. very differently, right? Like the way a uh, a hyper liberal who is Democratic or a hyper liberal who is Republican yeah. are going to manifest that very differently. The way that's going to look, but. That's right. It's the same fundamental idea of thinking that, no, 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 now the government does need to tell people. You need to tell those people how to live. Not me. I'm living the right way. But you need to tell that person how they're living. Yeah, and this idea of hyperliberalism actually comes from uh, the British philosopher John Gray. Um, And it's interesting because there are some people who disagree about this label, hyperliberalism, or whether we should actually call this illiberalism, you know, so okay. the opposite of liberalism in a sense. Yeah. Um, and John Gray, I think, argues that we should be calling this hyperliberalism because the thought, the idea behind it is, again, that there are some people who are trying to steal or who are, who by being the way they are and with the thought patterns that they live by, the messages that they're sharing and speaking, that's especially true, again, of those of us in the church, um, are trying to impose upon you, upon others, a way of living, therefore the government needs to now step in and silence those people. Okay. So that's, you know, in, in order to maintain a live and let live society, we need to silence some people who in the minds of others are taking away the idea of live and let live, right? So, or the gotcha. access to live and let live. And so that's really so what it comes down to. Down, it's shifted from who do we need to silence to right. what? Okay. Yep. Yep. So, you know, in hyperliberalism, the way the way I would characterize this is to say that the government or states acts as government or state acts as an authority and, and now begins to choose sides between competing sides or begins to choose between competing sides. And this is often, as you've said, this is often because of applied cultural pressure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it feels like there's a weight of culture pushing on one thing or a weight of culture pushing on something else. And so the government and depending on maybe who's in power, um, and in what branch of government mm-hmm. starts to push on those things as well. Gotcha. Now, what's interesting about this is um, there's less separation between, and I'm going to use the word church very loosely here, but there's less separation between church, and I don't mean Christian church. I mean, yeah. there's less separation between um, what is religious-like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what is the state in this sense, you know, so, um, you know, even if you look at the move towards secularism, it is pursued with a religious vigor. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so again, I would say there's a forming of a new religion in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is oftentimes the religion of self or the religion of do whatever you want, you know, that, I don't know what label to put on that right now, but. Uh, yeah, there's a it, set of values people are uniting right. around. It's bringing this group of people together. It's not a religion necessarily centered on God, but it is a. Correct. 
it, it could be seen as a form of religion. Yeah, yeah, as many have called it. I mean, they've called it the new paganism, and it's. I think, mm -hmm. I think there's correctness in that, calling it the new mm -hmm. paganism. So, um, you know, again, so as that happens, we're almost back around to some sort of incarnation of a theocratic state, but man, a jumbled and confused mess of a theocratic state mm -hmm. in some senses now. There are many who would really push back on that assertion, and that's fine. Um, you know, but uh, you know, so let me just give an example of this, and this this appeared in uh, Christianity Today just uh, very recently. Um, here's how this hyper liberal state starts to um, start to act things out. And again, I appreciate the distinction that you made in saying this is not about being conservative or liberal as we think about on. Uh, the United States, in, yeah. within the United States, within our politi Sorry, political American spectrum. political categories, that's, right. that's different than what we're talking about here. That's right. You know, so all, all we're saying is that you start to see moves of culture and then the culture calling for the government to do something. You know, I, I mean, I hate to use this because it's such a buzzword, but, um, but it exists on both, again, on both sides of the political aisle as well within our nation is this, you know, this idea of cancel culture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and this is an example, I guess, of cancel culture, if you want to use that language. Um, but there's, a, there's this Australian football executive who was a uh, CEO, I think, of the National Bank of Australia. I mean, a very, very high-ranking official. Mm -hmm. um, and he became the CEO of a football club, Australian Rules Football Club in Melbourne. So mm -hmm. actually the city where Mark Sayers is. Um, so he becomes the, he, he's, uh, you know, basically hired um, as the CEO of this football club. He begins the job and with thir within 30 hours of beginning the job, he is forced to resign from the job. You look at that and you're like, well, what, what could have happened that would have caused that to happen? Um, and all that happened is this, is some people started digging into this guy's background, found out that he attended a fairly conservative um, you know, Bible-believing church, and by Bible-believing, all I mean by that is to say that, um, you know, that these are people who believe that the Word of God is, you know, the Bible is the inspired Word of God, that it's infallible, um, that every bit of it is, and, and we ought to be honest about every bit of it, even when um, it pushes against what, what we like, maybe sometimes especially when it does. So... Um, so he was an elder at this church. And if, you know, if some of you are familiar with the Acts 29 network, you'll know who helped plant this church. I mean, it's a you know, fairly conservative group of reformed churches, primarily a church planting network. Um, so it was found out that he was, again, he was the elder of this church, one of the elders of this church. He was also the CEO of this football club. So the, after all this pressure came down upon the football club, um, the football club went back to uh, this guy and said, hey, listen, you've got a choice here. You can remain a CEO of this football club or you can remain an elder at your church or a member at your church, but you can't do both. And so he chose being an elder of his church and said, I, you know, it's not even a choice at this point in time. I'm going to be an elder of my church. Um, you know, of course, that led to a bit of an outcry. Um, and shock among a lot of people too. Shock, however, because many of us still believe that we're li living in a classical liberal world in the Western world. 
where it's live and let live. Mm-hmm. And where you're not going to get these cultural pressures that are going to, you know, if you're a Christian or if you're this, there's not going to be discrimination based upon your religious status. And you're not going to face this kind of thing, especially for us as Christians, where most of the Western world has been Christian dominated for so long. So it's a surprise to us. Now, it's not always a surprise to people of other, you know, faith groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a surprise to us when this happens, especially because we believe that we're, we're living in a classical liberal world, or at least a late liberal world. We, we certainly don't recognize the hyper-liberal world that we're currently living in, which, which is really important because, um, yeah, well, let me, let me, before I go any further, is all that connecting with you at this point? Is there? I think so, yeah. It's, this, is, this is interesting to give a good like, a background of... Um, I think the way our culture has has progressed, mm-hmm. and um, definitely find it fascinating. But what does this have to do with us? Why does this matter? Okay, yeah, that, no, that's a really fair question. Um, so, as it relates to the church, and I'm, I'm going to summarize what what I heard Mark Sayers say recently on one of his podcasts, and I think this is really, really poignant. So, here's what he says. He says. We've discipled people for a world that once existed. And again, this is kind of a paraphrase, a summary. We've discipled people for a world that once existed, but not the world in which we currently live or the one that lies ahead. Now that, to me, points out, I think, what is at stake. Because if we want to be about discipleship and discipling people, we've got to disciple people for the world that we live in, right? So uh, that means helping people understand the challenges to living faithfully as Christians that lie ahead, that could lie ahead. So, you know, I think, um, let, me, let me just say it this way. I think, I think that we may be headed into a period of time in which it may become a bit more difficult for those who follow Jesus to follow him in the public square, so to speak. I mean, we, we know this is true. We've already seen it happening in, in a number of different places where we've encouraged, we've encouraged to keep our faith private and, and personal. Now, I'm not going to say that your faith is not a personal thing. Of course it is. You've, it, it's your decision to follow Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. So in that, from that aspect, it's personal. But in, in the sense that um, we're told that it's, it's supposed to be personal, what's meant by that is it's supposed to be private. Well, our faith was never supposed to be private. In fact, mm-hmm. Jesus says, you know, if anybody is ashamed of me, like if you're ashamed of me, if you're not willing to be upfront about your your faith in me and that you follow me, well, I'm going to be ashamed of you as well. You know, that's those are hard words. You know, but Jesus did not call for us to have a private faith. He did call for us to have a public square faith because we're supposed to be disciples who are making disciples. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. that doesn't always mean we go shouting it from the mountaintop, as we can see in places like China and India, where there's persecution taking place and real serious persecution taking place and the church is still growing like wildfire sometimes we have to be subversive in the way we move the gospel forward and i think that is i think that's understandable Mm -hmm. um you know but but here within our nation again i don't see that level of persecution coming at least not quickly i don't think it's on the near horizon um, for us and it, it may never come i don't know um but i do think um i do think maybe like what was seen in Australia, um, maybe things for, you know, opportunities for things like, you know, social advancement, professional advancement. 
I think at least within some sectors of society, those kinds of opportunities may become more limited. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and here's what I would say about this. Um, if it becomes more difficult in, in our day to live as a follower of Jesus, the truth of it is, is that we're only going to be experiencing what Christians have experienced, experienced for most of Christian history. Right? I mean, really, what most Christians have experienced for most of Christian history. Yeah. This, it's not unusual to follow Jesus and to live on the outs with the rest of society around you or with a good portion of society mm-hmm. around you. Mm-hmm. This is what it's been to be a Christian for, for many, many years. Yeah. So if that's the case, then how should Christians choose to live in that cultural climate? Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, maybe even to put that question another way is how do we be a witness in the midst of that? Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, so, um, I mean, it happens that, that the authors of Scripture speak to this quite often. Um, and on Sunday, I, I shared just a few examples of this, and there really are quite a few more. I mean, two of the passages that we've already touched on this month, um, you know, Matthew 5, 11 through 16, where Jesus talks about being salt and light. Again, remember right before Jesus talks about being salt and light, he says, blessed are you when people, you know, persecute you, when people say bad things against you, when, when for my sake, things don't go the way maybe you wish they would go, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. You know, First um, Peter two twelve. Listen, I want you to live such good lives among the pagans, and you know, maybe for us among this new pagan style of living. I want you to live such good 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 lives among the pagans that even though they say all sorts of evil against you, right? Even so, even though they they don't love you for living a good life, even though that's true. Maybe one of these days they'll give glory to God the Father. I shared a third passage as well on, uh, on Sunday. It's from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 and 11. I think 8 through 11. And this, I think, is a really important one. Um, just set the context real quickly, and I won't take too much time with this. Um, I love this passage because there's this church in Smyrna. Um, you know, the Revelation, uh, we often think of Revelation as you know, being fully always apocalyptic and having these crazy signs and figures and everything else that goes with it. Well, the first few chapters, or at least chapter two and three, are these letters to seven churches that were very real churches that existed when John was writing this letter as Jesus is actually dictating basically this letter. John is um, reflecting what he saw. In some places, he's dictating what Jesus is telling him to say. In Revelation two and three, that's very much the case. There are these seven churches And Jesus speaks a message to these specific churches. One of these churches is called Smyrna. And so Jesus sees that this church is being afflicted, that they are facing uh, poverty, that they're being persecuted. And he has a message for this church that's enduring faithfully persecution. And I think that message then is a message for us as well, for any church that may endure persecution ahead. It gives us the recipe for enduring persecution, the hope while we're enduring persecution, whatever that persecution looks like. Again, I would say for us, what we're looking at, you know, some sort of, um, you know, like a social ostracization or professional ostracization is, is only, a, it is a soft form of persecution, honestly. So you may not get to have the exact job that, you'd ha- that you wanted to have. And that's tough in our society where we tell people to shoot for the stars and we have in our minds this idea of what's your dream job. Well, if you can't have your dream job and follow Jesus too, what are you going to choose, right? So here's what uh, Jesus says 
to this church in Revelation chapter 2, this church in Smyrna. He says, to the angel, which also can be messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you to some of you in prison to the test, some of you in prison to the test, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So I want you to just to see in that. I, real quickly, if I were to summarize those three verses and what Jesus was saying to the church in Smyrna and what Jesus would say to us facing much lesser, and again, I'm cautious to use the word persecution or what could be ahead, a much lesser form of persecution than what they were facing anyway, mm -hmm. although the persecution they had faced to that point left them impoverished and afflicted already by that point in time. And, and they were going to face prison and potentially even death. Um, but the word that Jesus has for them is whatever you are facing, choose faithfulness. That's it. Whatever you're, choose, whatever you're facing, choose faithfulness. And I think that's an incredibly important word for us today as well, because we are going to face some tension, I think, ahead. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it, I think it's definitely going to happen. Mm. Awesome. So as we come to a close, how can we practice this to be faithful in Jesus? Yeah. Um, well, I think... Um, I think the invitation of Jesus to all of us who have chosen to follow him is to be faithful and to live a good life despite the challenges that may present, mm -hmm. despite the opportunities that may even take away. You know, I, I think some of us may be forced to take a stock of our loyalties at some point in the future. And, and when we do, it would be best if we had already made our choice about where those loyalties lie. Mm -hmm. So, so let's just bring it back to the situation we talked about earlier in the podcast concerning the CEO, right? The, the football CEO in Australia or the, yeah, yeah. the bank CEO. What if you were faced with a similar situation? And, and, mm -hmm. and don't say that it won't happen here in the United States. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had people push back on that already. They, you know, well, that would never happen here in the United States. Let me say this. Don't say it won't happen here because it already has. I, I know of two situations, and again, I think I've even referenced them on this podcast before. And I can't speak of them because there's legal action pending in these cases, but two people who were let go because they would not do something their companies were telling them to do that clearly went against their faith. If they wanted to be Bible-believing Christians, they could not do what their companies were asking them to do. Um, and again, I, I like to be careful not go into too much detail on that. I, I don't know how much I've gone into before. Let's just say this. During LGBTQ month, they were asked to put a, you know, a, a very affirming um, signature, basically, at the end of each email. Now, again, I'm all for, we need to extend love to the LGBTQ community. That's incredibly important. Mm -hmm. um, Jesus loves people who are, uh, who are struggling with the LGBTQ lifestyle just as much as he loves people who are struggling with other sin issues. There's no doubt about it. Um, and so he wants for all people to repent and all people to be redeemed. I mean, that's why he's so patient with us. And so, um, so we need to love well the people in the LGBTQ community. That does not mean 
that we need to turn around and, and affirm in any way, shape, or form a lifestyle. And I know people will work through the choice of, uh, they'll work through how to handle that differently. And so mm -hmm. I'm not saying the way these guys did it is right and the way that other people would do it is wrong. But I know these guys refuse to and they no longer have their jobs because of it. Mm -hmm. Okay? So it's already happening here in the United States. So again, if we think it's not, we've got our heads buried in the sand and we need to wake up. Um, you know, I think... Well, and, ahead, and yeah, I yeah, even yeah. add to that, I think there's maybe even smaller daily situations that we sure. might face too. There's the big level of yep. losing your job. of, right. But then there's also just your reputation that you're with yep. a group of friends and they have different yeah. mindsets, different mentalities. Exactly right. And you choose to stand on, if you uphold like a traditional yep. Christian sexual ethic in those situations. Yes. Like if we're just taking that scenario for example, then you're gonna be looked at differently. Oh, yeah. You might lose some relationships. You might have people think negatively about you. So like there's yes. even just little scenarios like that on a daily basis that I'm sure most of us have mm -hmm. faced some level of that yeah. um, already in life. Yeah, you could use lose uh, friend relationships, family relationships. I mean, there's no doubt about it. There's a lot at stake here when it comes to following Jesus and, and saying, look, I, I know that, it, it might seem like there's an easy way out here where we could compromise some of these teachings of Scripture. And I know the temptation is real. The temptation is there. Um, but if we choose to be faithful, I can tell you, yes, I get it. There will be costs. Mm -hmm. There will be. And it might not just be, you know, you can't have this job that you want. It might not just be that, I mean, I, I guarantee you in, in the upcoming years, we will see People potentially denied college admissions for particular essays they wrote that had religious content. In fact, I know already um, people are being coached as they're seeking college admission to not put things in there about the mission trips they took with their church or anything along those lines because they might be denied admission to certain colleges because of it, or they might just not be chosen. You know, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily being denied admission because only so many people are admitted. Um, might just be framed more in the, you know, they, they weren't chosen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think um, here, here's the difficult part about this for many of us. You know, so we live in, in the United States. I, I, love, I love this country, wonderful country. I, I, don't know, I don't know that I'd want to live anywhere else, you know. And, and I'm, as I've shared before, I'm a dual citizen. So I've got, you know, citizenship here in the United States. I've got citizenship here. I've got citizenship in Belgium as well. I, this is where I want to live, you know, so, um, but it's difficult for many of us who live in this nation because, you know, once there was a time when choosing to be a Christian might have meant that you would actually have more opportunity than others. And not, not just because Christians were given favored status. Some of that is true. But I think also because it was thought overall that the Christians were, you know, a trustworthy bunch, like a people of good character. Um, people who are hard workers, you know, Colossians 3, because we are working for the Lord, not, not just as we're working for men. And mm -hmm. so you know, because of good character and, and potentially even thought of, you know, as good leaders, uh, the reality is we can't assume that will be the way that people think of us going forward. In fact, people may assume the opposite of us mm -hmm. because of the fact that we choose to follow Jesus. But back to this first piece about thinking about a choice you may have to make. I actually want to come back around and kind of spin that on its head as we close. Um, if you've chosen to follow Jesus, 
can we be so honest to say you've already made the choice? So as my friend David Young says, when you made the choice to be baptized, you made a public declaration about where your loyalties would lie from that day forward. I mean, when you made the choice to say, I'm, I'm letting the old self die, the new self is going to come to life through the power of Jesus. In that moment, as you chose that, you already decided who you were pledging allegiance to from this day forward. So when you get to the point where you're tempted with making a choice between that job, those friends, even a family member, whatever it happens to be in Jesus, remember, if you've chosen to follow him, you've already given him your allegiance. The question is not, do I choose him? It's, do I continue to choose him? You know, do I remember that I've given him my allegiance? You know, so I'd say, uh, you know, make sure you, you remember that moment in which you gave your life to him and know that no matter what things look like in this life, you've chosen the right side. Um, I think, you know, so for, for this case, you know, I, I think it's good just to come back to this idea. Um, when you're faced to make a decision in the moment and the emotion runs high, Sometimes it's easy to make the wrong decision because the emotions are running high. So everybody who's listening right now, I would just challenge you, don't wait until you're in the moment and your emotions are running high. Reflect upon this right now because it's possible your moment may be coming where you have to make a decision like this and know in that moment who you've already chosen. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's really good. It's a good way to, I think, to land this series um, that I know we've talked about a lot of a lot of good fruit yeah. that can come out of being a witness of Jesus. And that does, of, yeah. the, of us, how we represent Jesus and people coming to know Jesus out of yeah. that representation and a lot of good fruit that comes out of that. But it's kind of a sobering yeah. warning to remember that there's also persecution. There's yes. also negative consequences Absolutely. that we might feel in in a, in a um, in a earthly temporary sense, right? Eternally is a different matter, but yeah. there are yes. cons- consequences that might come from that that we might face. That we might face some levels of persecution. So I think this is a it's a sobering reminder in a sense. Yeah, um, and it's also I think a really powerful way to land this series. Yeah, I, I think so. And if I could end on a positive note. Um, you know, I, I did share this on Sunday to say this, and I, I believe this very truly, um, that sometimes it's our choice to live faithfully right in the middle of adversity that can end up being our most powerful witness of Jesus in everyday life. That's good. So, you know, don't diminish. Yeah. You know, we, we tend to want to run from adversity. Yeah. And I'm not telling yeah. you to run toward adversity either. But when you're in the middle of adversity and you still represent Jesus in everyday life, don't ever underestimate Mm -hmm. what kind of a powerful witness that is to others around you. That's good. I love that. Well, thanks for sharing that, Paul. Um, So that concludes our series, Witness. 
And next week we'll be diving into something different here. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll uh, we'll we'll let you know what that's going to look like. It'll be we're starting a new series in yes. at Grace Chapel. What's that series called, Paul? Um, it is called the Simple Message of John. Uh, we're going to be taking on a very different uh, format, so we're going to still try to yeah. flesh out exactly what we do here on the podcast. We may kind of go off script as far as following mm-hmm. the, the sermon mm-hmm. series. Uh, in fact, I think we probably will have to, mm-hmm. but uh, but we'll have some some good episodes yeah. ahead for sure. That's going to be good. We're excited about that. It might look a little different, but uh, hopefully you all keep tuning in for that. It's going to be a good time. And I know we covered a lot of material today. If you have any questions about any of that, we always love to hear your feedback. Yeah, sure. If you've got questions about something, we might be able to clarify more. We're could do bonus episodes or whatever, but just let us uh, us know if you have any thoughts on any of this. We always love hearing from y'all, and uh, until next time.